This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture, how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Clara Cook, and joining me today, as ever, is my co-host Duncan Barrett. Duncan, how are you? I'm not too bad, Clara. I think I might be coming down with a bit of a sniffle, but I'm just glad I'm not a Kelpian, so I know it's not the Vaharai. It's uh, probably just a, <laughs> an ordinary cold, I think, in this case, but not too bad. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I have chosen a very strange topic to podcast about today. Are you Are you ready for it? <laughs> we'll see, won't we? Uh, yeah, no, I'm going I'm to leave it to you to explain this one to the listeners uh, and I will, uh, I'll be along for the ride <laughs> one way or another. So the subject today is Star Trek across the world. It's alternative Star Trek, alternative tracks, alternative sci-fi. So basically the question I posed, Duncan, I would say quite a while ago, it was like a year ago, was what would happen if Star Trek was made by a different culture other than America? And the reason why I posed this question was because you mentioned that the original pitch for Star Trek, the original series, back in the 60s, was Wagon Train to the Stars. And obviously a wagon train refers to the wagon trains of American settlers that went out west across the US looking to settle. You know, we're thinking about cowboys... Little House on the Prairie, that kind of thing. And the idea of the Star Trek originally was a wagon train to the stars. So people in a starship seeking out new worlds, exploring in much the same way that settlers in America did back in the time of the Wild West. And so I questioned whether or not Star Trek is actually that American. I've had some varying answers to this question when I've brought up in discussions with other Star Trek fans. Some people think it is very American. Some people think it's very American, but actually inhabits and encompasses a whole load of themes that are actually quite European and not very American, such as socialism and a world without money uh, and a world without capitalism. But some people think it is very American. And obviously it was made in America, primarily by Americans, primarily starring American actors. And I wondered what would happen if Star Trek had been ba- been made by, say, for instance, the British, um, by other people in Europe, like the Russians, or who had their own sort of science fiction culture, or even actually made by, say, for instance, Asia, 
countries in Asia, which have a very different style of drama, a very different style of televised entertainment. And so that's where this podcast has come out of. It's a bit of an odd primitive culture, but we're going to explore it. And we may find that Star Trek wouldn't have changed, regardless of what culture it was made in. But we might also find the opposite as well. We're sort of delving into parallel universes, almost parallel Star Treks. And I mean, I'm kind of conscious talking about this. You know, you're saying that the idea for this came out of this question. Is Star Trek this sort of uh, inherently quintessentially American cultural product? And I would say, broadly speaking, yes, I think it is in many ways. On the other hand, my feeling when I got into Star Trek, I mean, I, I, I've talked about this before. It was, it was next gen really that got me into Star Trek. And then DS9, I watched sort of like from emissary onwards. And that was kind of my show, I suppose. And I suppose I was quite aware with those shows and also with the original series as well. There was this kind of internationalist aspect to it. I mean, so you think of the original series as this famously the United Nations in space, you know, you've got the uh, Russian Chekhov, you've got Sulu, uh, who's, you know, an Asian character, you've got Uhura, who is is not, you know, although Nichelle Nichols is an African American actress, actually, Uhura, I think is supposed to be African. You know, she, she speaks Swahili as a first language. So she's, she's not an African American character. And the same thing again with Georgie LaForge, uh, in Next Gen. I think it's somewhere it's mentioned that he was actually born in Mogadishu. So he again is not in that sense coded as an African American character. That kind of international aspect is almost emphasized slightly more by the fact that these people are supposed to literally grown up in certainly what we would understand today as as separate countries. Tony and I were sort of talking about this in, you know, in Star Trek, do these nation states, do they mean anything? Are they, are these kind of distinctions completely meaningless by that point? And obviously with Next Gen as well, you've got Patrick Stewart at the heart of it, who is a British actor, probably makes it more accessible for us as English people in some ways. And I'm very conscious that, you know, we're talking about this kind of question of is how American or otherwise is Star Trek and you know we're coming at it from the position of two outsiders uh, from another culture from British culture looking at that and obviously Star Trek has exported around the world I mean Germany for example famously very big Star Trek fandom over there it's a show that has sold very successfully into that market more so than into some other markets and I think as a kind of international fan of Star Trek, certainly going back in, back to the nineties when I sort of first got into Trek, you know, you were aware that you were a secondary market for it just in terms of the delay to get the latest episodes. I mean, these days it's kind of unbearable. We get this sort of, it's not even 24 hours really, uh, until the latest episode of Discovery drops on Netflix. I mean, if you, if you can take the day off work or you can watch it, I know Lee Hutchison watches it over breakfast before he goes into work. I think he clocks in a bit late the next morning, uh, as soon as it pops in on Netflix, but there is always that slight delay. And for me, I can only ever watch it like Friday evening. So about 24 hours after it's, um, first gone out for the Americans, there's that kind of 24 hours of spoilers everywhere on the internet, trying not to find out too much about it, you know, trying not not to have it spoiled for yourself. But I mean, that's nothing compared to what it was like when I was growing up with Star Trek, where it would be, you know, months, I think, often, and you'd be reading about these episodes in the Star Trek magazine and so on, uh, and knowing that, you know, you were waiting and waiting and waiting to get the latest thing. So you were kind of aware that you were not the primary market. Even so, my feeling sort of watching Next Gen, also maybe watching DS9, and I don't know, I mean, obviously, both those shows had a 
British character in them insofar as, you know, we have Alexander Siddig in, in Deep Space Nine. And you could say the same is true of Enterprise. You know, we've got Malcolm Reed in Enterprise. For, for me, that was never quite the same. I sort of somehow when Voyager came along and then particularly when Enterprise came along, that was the point where I started to feel there was something slightly culturally alien about these Star Trek shows. They felt more American somehow to me. They felt more kind of um, insistently American and less kind of internationalist, particularly Enterprise, despite the presence of Malcolm Reed, who I've mentioned before is not my favourite Star Trek character by a long shot. I think because with Enterprise, you had the two, the kind of two leads in a sense, you know, you had Archer and Tucker, and they were both such kind of all American guys. And they were kind of well, I know Archer was into uh, water polo rather than like American football or whatever, but they, they had that kind of real, they felt more like modern American characters, I suppose, rather than these kind of futuristic sci-fi characters. I don't know, to me, that sort of, it, it set the tone of that show and it did make me initially feel slightly more alienated from it in a weird way, slightly less instantly connected to it. I don't know whether you found that, you know, growing up with Star Trek, whether that was something that you kind of noticed as the series progressed and as things, you know, changed with the development of them, whether some of them felt more kind of easy to relate to than others. Yeah, so I actually come from an American background. So although I'm British mm. and I have grown up in Britain, I wasn't born in this country and I wasn't actually British until I was like around about nine years old. So officially. So although I'm culturally British because I went to the school system here, I interacted with British children and you know, British families and stuff. And so I'm very culturally British. I also have a very American parents. So at home, it was a very American sure, yeah. environment. So I think I didn't struggle so much to identify with Star Trek because of that. But I do remember feeling that there were parts of Star Trek that didn't fit in with the cultural world in which I was living. So for instance, in the original series, there's a lot of, it is very internationalist, you're right. But there's a lot of stuff that Kirk talks about, the, the themes that he talks about, the messages, the lessons that he, he gives to aliens on different planets are very, the very American ideas of freedom. Even, even at one point, he actually quotes from the Declaration of Independence, I think. Yeah. And, um, you know, the idea of individual freedom, the right of choice, self-determination, that's a very American idea. And, mm that didn't gel well with the society that I was living with in the UK, which is also about individual freedom, but where we have much more uh, of a socialist system. So like, for instance, the NHS, you know, I wasn't choosing who my GP was, you know, mm. and I did have one particular GP I liked, but when we went to the surgery, if he wasn't there, I saw a different doctor, you know, and, and it's, there were lots of things that I wasn't, I could see, I went to a state school, which is basically a comprehensive. And there was lots of stuff like that, that I could see that the state was funding this, the state was supporting this, the state was taking care of this. And that did mean less freedom of choice, which is not mm. something that I think I always saw in the rhetoric of Star Trek, despite the fact mm. that a lot of the Star Trek ideology is also quite socialist as well. So mm. this is real contrast and real contradiction. But I wonder if that's because there's a contradiction in America itself as a country in its culture, which might lead to a contradiction in Star Trek itself. And I think that there were elements to the whole franchise that were very American. So all the merchandising was American, you know? So when we used to go visit my family in the US, I used to find a lot more Star Trek merchandise in America. In fact, it was like right. exciting going there as a kid and you could go into 
I don't know, the, a store in those days, like you don't have this now, but where you'd have like DVDs or CDs or uh, VHS. Like I remember being really upset that I couldn't play a region one VHS in like a region two, like video player at home, you know, because they'd have all the latest Star Trek on VHS. They would have like Star Trek merchandise, the Star Trek, the, when the films came out in the cinema um, in America, they used to have like Star Trek, Star Trek themed things at the cinema, like Star Trek posters. And I saw two Star Trek movies in the cinema in the US with both with my aunt and uncle. And it was a much bigger deal. Everything just seemed like a much bigger deal in the US in terms of the franchise than in the UK. And I think, like you said, you kind of feel that as a fan abroad, which is that you're kind of getting everything a lot slower and there isn't as much available to you in terms of the books available or, or the toys or the models or whatever you're interested in, video games, that kind of thing. And that's really changed with the, the invention of the internet and like, now we have Star Trek, you know, conventions in the UK and in Europe, and you can get a lot of stuff now in the UK, like you said, around the same time as you get it in the US. So, but there was that feeling that the action in terms of this franchise was taking a place across the Atlantic Ocean mm. <laughs> in another country, not in the UK, <laughs> if you see what I'm saying. Definitely. I think that's true. And I mean, yeah, I, I guess I experienced that as well. And like you, I mean, I, uh, although I grew up in England, I had a, an aunt and an uncle who'd both moved to the States. So actually we would go on holiday to the States fairly frequently. I only, I mean, I always used to love going to see films there because you could always see them months in advance. For some reason, there was only one time that it lined up with when a Star Trek film was released and that was Star Trek Insurrection. So my only uh, actual experience of seeing Star Trek in the cinema in the United States was probably not really a high point of my Star Trek fandom. <laughs> that was the film where I was just like, wow, okay, this is, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of slightly killed something for me, that one. Um, but, you know, you're right, absolutely. And, you know, in America, of course, you know, there's Star Trek, the experience in Las Vegas, you know, something like that we would never really have here in the UK, something on that kind of scale, something on that kind of level. But I think it's interesting culturally when you talk about these sort of the values of the show. And yes, you're right. The original series particularly very much invested in these kind of, I suppose, Cold War era, partly American values. And it's quite kind of drum beating to some extent about them. Funnily enough, you reminded me when you were talking about that of the, maybe the first time that I identified something in Star Trek that just, um, slightly tweaked that kind of alien nerve. And it's actually in the best of both worlds. It's when Picard says, to the Borg, he says, my culture is based on freedom and self-determination. And that's not to say that our culture is not based on those things. I mean, we do value those things, uh, I'd say, in England, but they're not, I don't think an English person would ever define their national identity, in a sense, in, in that way. Whereas those, it seems to me, are very kind of core American values. And obviously coming out of this English man, French man, whatever, you know, <laughs> whatever he's supposed to be, uh, guy's mouth. That did sort of strike me when I first watched that episode. I sort of thought, that's interesting. I've never, I've never sort of heard that, that kind of a way of conceptualizing what our culture or what our society is. On the other hand, I'd say Star Trek's values, a lot of them are kind of broadly speaking, what we think of as Western values, you know, to do with kind of, um, you know, not oppressing minorities or to do with, um, you, you know, all the kind of sort of goody goody stuff of the Federation is not unique to the United States. These are kind of, attitudes that a lot of Western countries might have towards the rest of the world in terms of kind of trying to 
have a benign uh, positive impact on other countries trying to kind of not transgress certain kind of moral boundaries. There is this sort of idea of, you know, that these are kind of the the right thing to do as far as we're concerned. And I think a lot of those ideas we do share um, with the Americans. Interestingly, funnily enough, a, a bit of research I did for this episode when you said you wanted to talk about this was I went and got the, there were these books that were published for the 50th anniversary in German. And this was the first time, because I mentioned the German uh, Star Trek founder was always a big deal. Uh, the first time that licensed novels have been published in a language other than English. And they recently, or fairly recently anyway, translated them into English. So you can now go and read these German Star Trek novels. And, and I would say they don't seem, they didn't to me seem particularly German. Like there's a, a German character in there, but other than that, they, you know, don't, don't feel, it doesn't seem to me like the fact that a German has written it necessarily makes the whole project all that different. But there was quite an interesting conversation in one of these novels, in the first of these novels, between Esri Dax and another character. And she says something, I can't remember what it is. She she makes some kind of moral statement or some kind of uh, impassioned sort of Starfleet belief or whatever. And the other character says something like, that's a very sort of human-centric attitude, basically. And she's, and obviously, you know, Esri Dax is not human. She's a trill. But, um, and she, but she says basically, no, these are kind of shared values. These are basic moral values that essentially, she's essentially saying that should be shared by everyone. That yes, you might say that this is, you know, what it, whatever it is, freedom and self-determination has the sort of ring to it of an American value compared to somewhere else. But actually, these are things that everyone, sort of every decent person can sign up to. And I wonder whether in terms of the kind of values of Star Trek, Star Trek's values are pretty good values on the whole, you know, and and most people who watch it, I think, are pretty much on board with them. They they might have some issues with some of the kind of practicalities of, of certain aspects of it, but I think broadly speaking, that the the values that the franchise has always had are a really intrinsic and core part of it. And that's why you get, you know, when you have a Star Trek series that seems to deviate from those values slightly, as we saw, of course, with Enterprise after 9-11, and this was a point where arguably American values and global values were more at odds because America was slightly going, and, and we were going with them to a large extent, but, you know, taking quite a controversial stance, taking a more, maybe more sort of isolationist stance in some ways in terms of saying this is what we're going to do, this is acceptable in this situation. We don't need international support for what we're doing. And that also was the point, you know, and these uh, moves were controversial within America as they were around the world. And that was the point where you had a certain number of Star Trek fans saying, this doesn't feel like Star Trek. You know, I'm, I'm talking about the Zindi arc in season three of Enterprise. This is making me feel uncomfortable. So there is, so I suppose Star Trek's values, whatever they are, have always been very important to Star Trek fans, I think, and to feeling like if they're questioned or if they're kind of undermined. You had the same thing with Deep Space Nine. Lots of people felt, oh, it's not Star Trek or I don't, you know, it's not my Star Trek. I don't like some of the things it's saying, some of the kind of moral greyness of that series. So in a way, maybe that kind of moral certainty of the original series, that kind of quite confident, like I say, quite sort of drum-beating kind of ethics and ideology almost um, of kind of freedom and, and so on is is considered to be really baked into Star Trek somehow. And if you chip away at any of the kind of values that the show is assumed to have, people get very uncomfortable about it. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And obviously the values of Star Trek are good values. So this isn't to criticise Star Trek so much or criticise American values. I just want to emphasise, we don't want to offend anyone with this podcast. But there's also an aspect to the Federation, which 
you mentioned when we were talking about this podcast, which I thought was, I didn't think of before, but it actually is quite interesting. And I sort of, there's some thinking around it was this idea of the manifest destiny and exceptionalism, you know, that there's this great cause and this great purpose and that the Federation are exceptional. Mm. And ironically, this isn't something that is actually just particular to America. You know, obviously all countries feel they're important in their own right. I mean, that's nationalism, isn't it? But America, there is an exceptionalism to American culture that perhaps you don't find in sort of maybe cultures that are slightly more irreverent about themselves. And I Mm. felt that ironically, this is also something that when I visited Japan and what I heard while I was there from Japanese people is they also have an exceptionalism kind of idea about their culture. Like we are not part of Asia. We are unique. We're unique Mm -hmm. in the world. We're the only country in the world like ourselves. Like we're the only people like us. And that is something that you do hear a lot in America, you know, and you do see American politicians talk about, you know, um, God bless America, the great country, you know, the great social experiment. And you also, I mean, even at the end of the state of the union, address just recently the entire house was on their feet you know like cheering go america go america go america mm-hmm. which is kind of make me it kind of makes me uncomfortable i'm not sure that i want my politicians to stand up and like have some sort of rousing patriotic cheer you know and that isn't something you actually find with all countries across the world but that's very federation that's very federation the federation yeah. see themselves as exceptional and they see themselves kind of only as the way to be you know, that collectively we are stronger, which is a good message, but that the Federation makes the rules and they also, they make the right rules, the best rules. And they're also, uh, you know, exceptional, that they're more exceptional than say, for instance, the Klingon empire or the Romulan empire. And I'm not to say that these other sort of cultures in Star Trek aren't totalitarian or feudal or oligarchies, you know, the Federation is actually the best example of people working together equally. But there's also a lack of element of like other outsider point of views. And, you know, you were sort of saying a while ago that Star Trek Beyond had this tagline in the trailer of like, mm. this is where the frontier bites back, which turned out and to pushes be... Pushes back. Pushes back. Pushes which, back, yeah. Which turned out to be completely like, it, it wasn't what we thought it was going to be, which we thought it was going to be like frontier aliens kind of objecting to the Federation. Mm. It was something else entirely. But in a way, that's kind of what the discovery was a little bit about, you know, with the Mm. whole Klingon war. The Klingons were like, actually, we don't really want to be part of the Federation. We don't want to adhere Mm. to your rules. They're not our rules. They're not our laws. You're not our society. I'm not saying that's right, but there hasn't been many examples of cultures that don't want to buy into that exceptionalism of the Federation in Star Trek. I would say, arguably, the Klingons have a form of exceptionalism of their own insofar as, and maybe this is, you you know, like you were saying, the Japanese maybe have a similar idea. You know, the Klingons feel they're the only, or the Klingons feel, or at least ostensibly claim they feel that they're the only honourable race in the galaxy, don't they? You know, there's something better about them. And the Romulans probably, and the Cardassians, you know, all the kind of major other political kind of blocks in Star Trek, I think have that kind of self-confidence in their own, identity somehow and obviously they're all they need to be quite distinct and then and the Borg you know certainly how I mean if anyone thinks they're exceptional the, the Borg think they're perfect basically so you know um but I suppose it's interesting you know you were saying that in a, 
I think part of it's in in America that you're right, there isn't that kind of self-effacing quality that maybe in Britain we're kind of aware. And maybe this is because, you know, we used to have this huge, you know, empire on which the sun never sets. And now we know we're just this kind of small island. And as much as there is nationalism in Britain, there are people who are very proud to be British and so on. But I think there's an awareness that we are there there tends to be a little bit of humor about it there tends to be a little bit of kind of irony about it or whatever for 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 many people at least and i think that's true of a lot of countries and i suppose in our world the countries in the maybe part of what makes us uncomfortable about that kind of nationalism and that kind of national pride on such a kind of unqualified level which maybe is certainly to me as an outsider is the sense that i get often as being a kind of part of american culture and I suppose it goes along with like saluting the flag and all this kind of thing is that maybe consciously or not, we associate that with regimes that were, that did not have good values, you, you know, with Nazi Germany or with, you know, you mentioned with Japan, I mean, Japan in World War Two, you know, these, these cultures that did see themselves as kind of, or, or Napoleon in France, you know, saw themselves as kind of the best in the world somehow that often that has a kind of imperialist or a kind of expansionist or a kind of, um, you know, who are they defining themselves against quality about it? I'm not sure that's necessarily the case with the kind of American version of exceptionalism, but, uh, there, there is that sense, you know, in, you, you mentioned manifest destiny as well. This, you know, the idea of having a destiny. And I think you're right. The Federation definitely feels that it kind of has a destiny, but it's interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen the first episode of the Aaron Sorkin show, the newsroom. There was this scene, which is, you know, it's become a bit of a meme in itself in a sense, like it gets shared on social media endlessly, even if you've never seen the show. But what it is, is a, um, a sort of panel discussion and the panel is being, is, is a kind of Q and A with the audience. And someone in the audience asks the question, why is America the greatest country in the world? Which, ha- you, you know, presupposes that it is. Um, and then these people are giving their different reasons as to why they think that's the case. And then finally, the guy who's the kind of maverick, um, troublemaker character, the TV show at the end, uh, says, actually, I don't think we are the greatest country in the world. And he gives all these reasons why, you know, I don't know. I can't, I can't remember what he talks about, but you know, you might say Scandinavian countries have a better education system or, you know, this country has fewer people incarcerated in prisons or, you know, whatever it is. But that is considered such a shocking thing to do, certainly in a public forum like that, that that's, that's why the scene is dramatic. Whereas I don't think, you know, it's in, in Britain, no one would ask that question in those, terms they might i suppose someone might ask you know i don't i don't think anyone would even ask they would, would no one would even imagine that britain was the greatest country in the world but they certainly the idea that you would make an assumption like that it would be seen as totally ludicrous almost do you know what i mean and and, and kind of inappropriate and i suppose that's where this sort of idea of kind of exceptionalism and kind of being special uh comes from is that idea and obviously you know in terms of superpowers in terms of like wealth in terms of many many markers in terms of you know a lot of kind of uh positive things that have happened in the course of the last century and so on america has led the way i mean america is the sort of global policeman to some extent there are you know some of these things have some kind of weight to them but equally i think for anyone who's not grown up in that culture and maybe for many people who have grown up in that culture as well uh it's maybe the situation is a bit more complicated than that and a bit more sort of nuanced than that and i think it's interesting to sort of see how does star trek borrow some of that uh attitude and yet attach it to a quite a, a different society a society which is obviously 
is quite American in some respects, but in others is much more internationalist, is much more, as you say, much more basically socialist in terms of their, you know, having given up money and so on, is much, you know, yes, it's about freedom and self-determination, but it's also very much about compassion and kindness and kind of looking after everyone and making sure no one gets left behind and these kind of things, which, you know, on the face of it, are slightly in conflict with those values, I'd say. And also we have to remember that America is a real melting pot in terms mm-hmm. of a country. So there's lots of people in America who are from different parts of the world, recent immigrants or children of immigrants or grandchildren of immigrants or great grandchildren of immigrants. So obviously, you know, a lot of those people encompass both Western American values, but also they encompass the values of their original home countries, you know? So they, I'm just thinking about like the prevalence of English speaking television. And I'm thinking about how, you know, most American television is, well, I say most, I would say probably 99% of American television is delivered in English, you know, and that English is a language that basically is spoken across the world in lots of lots of countries. It's the most widely spoken language. But in the most recent Discovery series, there were some people, I'm not saying a lot of them, but there were some people who objected to the fact that the Klingons would uh, had subtitles, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm thinking, but the rest of the world that doesn't speak English <laughs> or English is their second language, they watch American television with subtitles. Or maybe mm-hmm. they don't. Maybe their English is good enough. But that's a weird thing as well. Or they dub it. I or mean, they I dub think it. In Germany, yeah. Star Trek was always dubbed into German because uh, I think I remember at a convention, there was some discussion about the, the guy who played, I think this was right, James Dewan was telling some kind of story about the, the guy who had dubbed Scotty for German TV. And for, I, I think it was the same guy. I mean, I, don't quote me on this. I'm not sure. But and this is going back, you know, decades, obviously. But I think he was telling a story about how he'd sort of got to know the guy who was the German Scotty, basically, who had sort of shadowed his career, in a sense, for all these decades, uh, dubbing all his lines into German. And obviously, that has an impact, you know, for the German fans. Yes, they, they probably want to meet James Dewan and so on. But they also want to meet this other guy who's been doing his voice for all these years. And that is, you know, a, a strange thing maybe for us to get our heads around we don't very often dub foreign films into english i think we see foreign films as something you have to put up with subtitles and there is a kind of prejudice about subtitles and oh if there's subtitles it's going to be hard but, work and it's going to be serious and boring and yeah so on. but i would argue that there's more of a prejudice against subtitles in the u.s than there is against subtitles in, in the uk partly because we're closer right, to europe okay. we're closer to mm. a whole landmass of different speaking cultures and obviously america's mm. a much bigger continent a bigger country is a continent, you know, uh, with like majority of people in that country probably speaking English. But there are also a lot of people in America who speak different languages. Spanish mm-hmm. is very, very widely spoken in the US. So it always shocks me when, you know, a foreign film that has subtitles doesn't do well in the US. I'm thinking you've got such a variety of like ethnic backgrounds in your country I don't understand mm. how, you know, you couldn't, <laughs> you can't deal with like a foreign speaking film. But I mean, it's interesting you should talk about dubbing because I've been watching a television series on Netflix that is set in Belgium about a Belgian detective. And I, the default when you go onto Netflix to watch this show, it's a very good show, by the way, I would recommend it to everybody. It's called The Break or La Treve. And the default setting is that it's in French with English subtitles. So I just watched the entire series like that. And then by accident, one day, while fiddling around on my phone, trying to watch the show, I touched a button and 
it suddenly was dubbed in English as American actors who had dubbed mm. it. So I think this was for an American audience because it wasn't an English actor, an English accent. And it was a completely different experience. And it wasn't better. I'll be honest. It's like watching uh, an anime, you know, like a, like Spirited Away, the film Spirited mm. Away, which is a Japanese animated film, which is a wonderful animated film. You can watch it with sometimes quite famous American actors dubbing it, or you can watch it in the original Japanese with subtitles. It's quite a different experience. Obviously, they're trying their best to translate exactly what your, you know, what the original text was, or the original dialogue into the dubbing. So they're trying to be accurate and the actors can be very good actors, but it's a, di- it is a different experience. It's like walking into a room and everybody's mouths are moving, but like, at a different speed in which you're hearing the conversation. It's almost like a time delay a little bit. Mm. And I think it is quite different. So the sort of unwillingness to engage with a different language and what I saw sort of online from some people, the unwillingness to engage with the idea that an alien language in Star Trek would be dubbed, not dubbed, sorry, um, subtitled, always struck me as odd. I was thinking, well, this, but this is what you will encounter when you start watching more and more foreign science fiction, which I think is actually coming. I think there will be more and more foreign science fiction coming because with streaming services online now, you can go onto Netflix or Amazon and you can watch a whole manner of shows from across the world. You can watch Russian period dramas and Mm. Korean soap operas. You know, you can watch uh, historical dramas from Spain. You know, you can watch Scandinavian noir films, you know, so the world's becoming smaller and smaller, and I think we're going to end up in sort of absorbing each other's entertainment. And often you don't actually know until you hit play on Netflix. I mean, I sometimes find that slightly frustrating. Um, and maybe this is my kind of uh, <laughs> English speaking prejudice and not wanting to watch subtitles or whatever. But, you know, you can see a series and, and just assume that it's going to be an English or American series. And then you hit play and suddenly. Or sometimes there's a clue. If you notice that all the all the actors' names <laughs> look distinctly foreign, then you think, hang on, okay. But I do think there's something strange about the way that Netflix doesn't... They're not categorised by the fact that... It's not that there used to be like a section for foreign film and it would be a kind of distinct thing and you'd sort of know that you were that that was what you were going to do somehow. Whereas on Netflix, it all gets merged in. So if it's, like you say, science fiction or if it's period drama or something, the foreign language ones will be kind of mixed in there. And I suppose that does challenge you in a sense because as much as we do still want to watch i think part of it is like we want to watch high quality imported drama so we want to watch the killing we want to watch borgen we want to watch these like acclaimed kind of five star golden age of tv imported shows and these kind of classic you know acclaimed foreign films and so on whether we want our kind of disposable light entertainment to be whether we want to have to watch subtitles to read subtitles for our kind of light entertainment, I think is another question. And I think maybe that's part of where I've sometimes felt with Netflix that they were being, that they, they should have been a bit more upfront about it because if I just want to watch something for a bit of fun or whatever, then maybe I am still a little bit more prejudiced about that kind of thing. But I think it's interesting, you know, talking about dubbing, you could say the, the way the universal translator works in Star Trek, you know, for most of the time in Star Trek, aliens will just speak, everyone speaks English. And that is effectively, you know, and we're given this in universe explanation that there's a universal translator. And in Discovery, we have seen the operation of the translator. And we, we did, we had this in Beyond as well, mm-hmm. you know, where you can hear both languages at once and there's kind of at least uh, a sort of transitional 
point in the way that the filming is done and the, and the audio is put together and everything and, the, and then the way it works that you kind of and then you sort of seamlessly move into everyone speaking English for the sake of the viewer. And that's kind of just sort of a convention. And the same is true with World War II movies or whatever. You know, often the Germans are all speaking English as well, rather than them all, you know, speaking German the whole time. But there is this kind of tension, I suppose, in Discovery. And it is tied very much into this idea of the other and the alien. And because of the whole thing with the Klingons, because the Klingons spoke so much subtitled dialogue, compared to ever, you know, anything in Star Trek before. I mean, you know, in previous Star Treks, there might be small amounts of subtitled dialogue. I'm thinking like in um, The Wrath of Khan, there's a little bit between Spock and Savick, isn't there? But it's, you, you know, only a, a couple of lines. Whereas we were having whole scenes of uh, that were basically a foreign film. I quite liked it. At a certain point, you know, they always have the previously on Star Trek Discovery at the beginning. And there was one of them a certain way in where they, they had a Klingon saying it and then it was subtitled in English. I thought that was quite <laughs> brilliant like it made me laugh i thought it was, it was a nice trick but they were definitely kind of toying with this idea of this kind of language barrier and this kind of language difference and this kind of cultural difference and the idea that somehow that was like a, an extra option just the same way as having a different character say it each time because i guess traditionally with star trek you'd always have major barrett saying that wouldn't you or, or whatever and in discovery you have what's quite common with tv these days where you have a different actor each week uh, doing it and that kind of allowed them to bring in I don't know who it was who said it in Klingon but you, you know to kind of bring that in and just slightly underscore that point again and I think it is an interesting you know is are we, we we're kind of privileged in a way as native English speakers that we can consume a lot of you know there's so so much of kind of culture that's produced and so much money that goes into the production of TV and film and so on is, is towards English language stuff. So we're kind of slightly spoiled by that in some ways. Whereas in other countries, you know, they rely much more on imported material in, in what would be a second language to them. Uh, you know, just in order to have access to more of that kind of high quality, high budget sort of entertainment in a sense. So one of the things that struck me as interesting is when we were sort of talking about what we were going to discuss on this podcast, you also brought up the fact that we talked about how international, you know, the crews were, especially in the original series. And mm. the idea of this like internationalist kind of um, society of the Federation. And you also said that you thought it was interesting that two of Star Trek's most idealized captains, Picard and Georgiou, are both non-Americans. And I just wondered... Like what you felt about that, and what, what what did you think? Like the other aliens in Star Trek, are, are, do they are they American or do they represent other sort of cultures and other sort of countries on Earth? Even I think often the I mean many Americans in Star Trek can sort of read as as basically American, I suppose, as sort of having that feel of, I mean, they're typically played by American actors. They generally have American accents, I suppose, for a start. Yeah, it just sort of struck me, if you think about the Star Trek captains more than the shows themselves, you know, you have Kirk, who's this kind of, you know, I was going to say boy next door, but you, do you know what I mean? Like this kind of, this guy from Iowa, you get this, you know, he's come from this kind of rural area in a sense. He's a certain kind of sort of American masculine character maybe you know you mentioned the wagon train kind of tying back almost to that kind of he's he's not from new york city or san francisco or somewhere do you know what i mean he's from a kind of 
all American. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> Not just American, but all American. And I think you get that again, certainly with Archer. I know he's from New York State, I think, but again, I assume kind of slightly more rural anyway. Janeway, again, I can't remember where she's from, but she somewhere in the Midwest. from the I country. Think, isn't, she? Uh, doesn't, yeah, isn't she from you know, like a, a rural area? I'm pretty sure she is. I th- I'm pretty sure she is. Is that somewhere kind of Midwestern? And I suppose that sense of those kind of Midwestern all American values. Do you know what I mean? Not, not being kind of elitist, not being kind of intellectual, not being, you know, these kind of prejudices that you maybe have about the coasts a little bit or about the, the big cities or whatever. Cisco, I guess, as far as we know, I assume was brought up in New Orleans. Maybe that's a bit different, but anyway, they all quite kind of strongly American identities one way or another. Picard obviously is interesting because, you, you know, notionally he's French and yet he speaks with an English accent. But either way, I think it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that the way that character developed with that identity. And obviously I, I know that, you know, he was conceived of as being French. They weren't necessarily going to cast an English person to play it. They auditioned American actors as well uh, for that role. But Picard is also, you know, he is, as you said, the most idealised. He's the kind of most perfect captain in some ways i mean there's a reason that he always wins in those polls of who's the best captain insofar (laughs) as like he's this kind of real moral authority and that's interesting in some ways because it sort of makes you wonder is there something about the kind of american ideology or the american kind of whatever you call it sort of belief system or whatever that this foreigner has this kind of greater claim to moral authority somehow. And it just occurred to me, you know, when when Discovery came along, everyone was saying, oh, Giorgio is the most Picard-like captain that we've uh, seen since Next Gen. And she, again, is someone who is explicitly not American. She, you know, she's, she's come from a different Earth culture. So it just sort of struck me, what's that, what is that saying? You know, if Captain Kirk is a kind of archetypal all-American hero, what is it saying that these the characters who are the least flawed, who are the kind of most noble in a sense are not the americans the the americans seem to be the ones that are slightly more compromised or whatever whereas these these more kind of noble more perfect uh leaders actually seem to come from other societies from with, with slightly different cultural background well that might be because america's looking out more or american audiences mm. are looking out more i mean that seems kind of hard to believe considering the political policies of the last 10 years which have been quite mm. i would say inward or isolationist i suppose i mean you could talk about that you could debate that i mean we're not here to do that but i wondered if maybe that's because the world's becoming smaller and that americans mm. are more exposed to people on the other side of the world you know they're traveling more perhaps and so maybe american audiences are attracted to characters that you know represent something different than themselves i also wondered a little bit if it's because perhaps maybe they represent less of like a gung-ho kind of militaristic Mm. american culture that you see in lots of other genres of television and they're more like the idealized values like that america ascribes to or americans ascribe to so the idea of a scientific exploration you know, I'm thinking that, you know, with the sort of how interested the American public are in actual science, they really are very interested in science, popular science. Mm-hmm. A lot of that's to do with NASA and space exploration. And I would say maybe Americans are actually more interested in science than a lot of other cultures in the world, a lot of other countries. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's very much Picard, that's very much Georgia, you know, 
they're sort of trying to find scientific reasons for things. It's less Kirk. It's perhaps less Cisco, you know. Uh, it's kind of a lot of Janeway, though. I mean, where does Janeway fall in all of this? It's, I guess she does come from a very American background, but I've always felt like Janeway's a little bit European as well and some of her interests and her values. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, she has this... I, I know that Kate Mulgrew, if you read her memoir, for example, talks about her having sort of Irish roots and so on, and Ireland was very important to her. And obviously we see Janeway connecting with this Fairhaven program and with these kind of Irish characters and so on, as if there's... And I sort of assume that that must have been fed into from Kate Mulgrew's own links to Ireland and so on. Although I, I don't think it's ever explicitly said on screen that that's, that that's an element of it for Janeway. But they're... they're I don't know. When you know that about Kate Mulgrew, you can't not see that as somehow referencing that one way or another. And you sort of wonder, you know, this Katie O'Claire or whatever her name is, her sort of Irish, uh, you know, sort of identity that she assumes in the program seems to kind of mean something to her. And obviously that's true for a lot of people in America. You know, a lot of people in America will say, oh, I, yeah, I'm, you know, they'll identify as the place that their ancestors have, have come from to some extent in a way that I think to people outside of America often seems slightly strange. Do you know what I mean? Like, because you sort of think, well, no, you're not Irish because you, know, you, you didn't grow up in Ireland. You, you may never even have been to Ireland. You know, what, what does it mean to say that you're Irish in that sense? But that is quite, you, you know, maybe in that kind of melting pot society, I think those kind of hyphenated identities or whatever and those kind of that you know background in that sense is seen as more meaningful as more important as more as somehow key to your identity in a way that maybe would be slightly less the case in some other countries i think it's also got to do with western history so Mm. you know when you think about like say for instance i mean just from american friends that i have when they come over here, they get very excited how old all the buildings are in London. You know, like, oh right, my God, yeah. this is an Elizabethan building, you know, compared to what we have in New York or compared to what we have in LA. And so I think part of it is like this idea that, you know, you do have some distant past, you do have some distant history that you can mm. reach out and touch, you know, compared to say, for instance, <laughs> England, where, you know, you're tripping over basically a plague pit every time you walk around London because... The city's been built upon and built upon and built upon and built upon um, since like the Roman era and before even. So there's something to be said for the fact that grasping onto this history that is actually quite far away for your country. It seems quite distant for your country because your country is actually a relatively newer country compared to the older countries that your ancestors came from, if that makes sense. I mean, one of the things I want to ask you about was what do you think about the sort of backgrounds of the aliens and the reason why i thought this was an interesting idea was because when i watched babylon 5 uh, when i was younger i always assumed that londo malari the character of londo malari who is actually a centauri so he's an alien i always assumed that he was foreign you know he wasn't he seemed foreign he seemed um not just because he was an alien and they mentioned that he was an alien because he looks quite humanoid just had sort of a strange hairstyle. And occasionally I think they mentioned that he had, um, like different sexual organs or something, but they never, they never showed any of that. So I always, he just looked like a human to me, but it's because the, the actor, Peter Jurassic, 
adopted a Eastern European accent, like on the second day of filming the show. And that just stuck, you know? So he, he's pretend, he's an American actor, but he's pretending with this accent. He just put on this fake accent. And that made me think of Deanna Troy in season one of Next Generation has this weird accent. It makes him seem non, non alien. It makes him seem alien. Yeah. And yeah. it makes, it makes Troy seem alien. So like, are they trying to do that with other alien? characters in star trek like is spock actually american like does spock seem american do you know what i mean like or were they actually trying to make them seem foreign and by doing that were they kind of making them seem i don't know french or making them seem german or i think spock is an interesting one i think there's something about it's not so much an accent because you know len nimoy hasn't had an american accent but there's something about his delivery and his style and his i don't know the kind of tone of his voice and something that does feel if not alien, then slightly unusual somehow. And it'll be interesting to see what we get with, you know, the new Spock, Ethan Peck, because I suppose he seems to have this quite kind of distinctive, quite deep, kind of quite interesting voice at least. So maybe, maybe that kind of helps to have that kind of interesting vocal quality. But um I think you're absolutely right with Marina Sirtis and she... I think she's talked about it. You know, she she was sort of saying, you know, what, what's the accent meant to be? And they were like, well, she's a Betasoid. We never met one before. We don't know what the <laughs> Betasoid accent is. Make something up. So she sort of made something up. I don't know where she came up with that accent because it is quite weird, Troy's accent. And it does get progressively less noticeable as next gen goes on <laughs> to the point where by the movies, I mean, by the time you get to drunk Troy in first contact, to me, she just sounds more like Marina Sirtis and less like, you know, less even than, than kind of Americanized Troy. But so it's like there's a level of kind of, there's, there's her, you know, natural London accent. There's her kind of Americanized, Hollywoodized sort of, I suppose, kind of standard Americanish accent. There's Troy's weird early accent, <laughs> which I guess part of it was when Major Barrett came on board and was meant to be playing her mother. She clearly was just like, well, yeah, I'm not doing that accent, <laughs> you know, and just talked with, you know, uh, with an American accent. And then there's this kind of question of like, well, where does, so if, you know, if that's how her mother talks, then where on earth has Troy's accent come from? And no other basis or it seemed to have this accent. So she kind of, she kind of boxed herself into a bit of a corner there, I suppose, one way or another. But, um, but you're right. It, you know, it was absolutely to make her seem more alien. It does make her seem more alien. And Troy in season one does seem much more alien than Troy in season seven. So it works in that sense. There's also a question. I mean, there's quite a funny clip of Patrick Stewart on the Graham Norton show, uh, talking about, and I don't know if this is true or if it's just a story, but basically saying that he, he, during one of his many auditions for Star Trek, they got him to do it in a French accent because obviously he was meant to be playing this French character. And so he reads for Graham Norton, the, you know, space, the final frontier, uh, sort of speech in this kind of Inspector Clouseau kind of <laughs> French accent, which is quite funny. It's, you know, worth a listen. But so there is obviously that, so there's that, that weird choice that you have this character who's explicitly supposed to be French, but he's, uh, speaking with an English accent. You have with Discovery, you know, we had two characters in the first season, Discovery, Ash Tyler and Lorca. Both of those characters were obviously American characters, but they happened to have hired British actors to play them. And also this weird coincidence, assuming it is a coincidence, that both those characters were not who they said they were. And literally those characters were not who they said they were insofar as they were both putting on an accent uh, that was not at all their own, you know, speaking voice. And the same thing, I suppose, is true even with Enterprise. I mean, uh, Connor Trenier in Enterprise plays trip with this southern accent now that is not his own accent i wouldn't have known that 
until I watched like an interview with him or something. I just kind of assumed that was where he was from and that was how he talked. But so I suppose it, it's normal in a sense for actors to put on different accents for different roles and so on. But I mean, there is this sort of question of what does that do? You know, what does that do to the character? How much of the actor is, you know, how much does the actor bring themselves to the character? And how much are they putting it on like a, you know, a, a costume or a glove or something outside them? And I think with Jason Isaacs, as I understand it, because he's told this story many times, it was very much his choice that he wanted to play American because he felt he didn't want to play that character with an English accent. He he said because he didn't want to be compared to Patrick Stewart. And I can sort of understand that, you know, that's the other English captain in Star Trek. He doesn't want to draw comparisons there. I think also, given that Isaacs traditionally plays bad guys, and he often plays the English bad guy in an American movie, <laughs> and there is this kind of real association between English actors and playing the villain one way or another, that maybe it would have been a bit too much of a tip of the hat to the fact that he was secretly a villain. Whereas playing him as an American allows him to seem more like this kind of flawed hero, if you know what I mean. I mean, if it weren't for the things that Lorca does, he does have a lot of the charm and the swagger and all those kind of qualities that you do associate with someone like Captain Kirk or, or so on. You know, he's he's um, he's got the kind of personality down right in terms of that. It's just that it, it's, it turns out he's not who he says he is at all. But I think that was an interesting... I th- I think it's sort of hard to imagine how Lorca would have worked with an English accent. I don't really think that would have that would have come off somehow. Although, obviously, with a name like Lorca, you'd think he might be Spanish. Yeah, so I was about to say. Maybe that was on the table as like, well. Why not a Spanish accent? I mm, mean... Maybe that's not in Jason Isaac's repertoire. <laughs> you know. So speaking of repertoire, I think we should t- go on to talk about the fact that we did a fair amount of research around... <laughs> Um, foreign science fiction. That's what we're calling it, is it? <laughs> I watched. We watched some very strange. Programs. I watched some very yeah. strange programs on YouTube. I mm. just, I, I did it. I did it all for the listeners of Primitive Culture. Mm-hmm. I want to emphasize that. Yeah. This was, I would say, a few hours of my life. That I'm probably never going to get back. <laughs> <laughs> and I did it for you guys. I hope you appreciate yeah. it. So one of the reasons why I thought this would be interesting to do is because. The more I started looking into the subject, the more I realized that there isn't anything like Star Trek outside of the US. Now, mm. I wasn't going to include all the Orville in this, or for instance, Galaxy Quest, because they are kind of, I mean, apparently, according to people that I've spoken to recently, the Orville is starting to move into a much more serious show, but they are essentially parodies of Star Trek, or mm. they are homages, or they're sort of aping Star Trek. They're, they're basically very similar. And they're always compared to Star Trek as well, right? Mm. So, so I wasn't going to include those in it, but I was going to, I wanted to look at the science fiction that is being made abroad for foreign audiences and that is intrinsically sort of linked to those cultures. So I did a bit of research. And if you go onto Wikipedia and you type in like foreign science fiction series, you'll get a whole range of different science fiction series. And they range from like animated, to uh, sort of like web series, to uh, live action stuff, to films, to TV, but also to stuff that was like made in the 60s, um, to stuff that was made like, you know, like just last year, all sorts of stuff and from all different cultures. But one thing you will find is there's a lot less outside of Western culture, and especially outside of the US, than there is within the US. 
Mm. So subjects in foreign sci-fi range from time travel, visitors from outer space to like people from outer space that come and visit Earth, space spies or government surveillance actually on Earth. On Earth. One was... It's cheaper for a start, isn't it? I mean, to to do a sci-fi series set on Earth is a lot cheaper than doing one set in space. So that may be one reason that a lot of these countries have not, you know not necessarily invested in kind of space action shows, which arguably on one level is what Star Trek is. Well, a lot of Star Trek is made, um, or it was made in LA, Los Angeles. Mm. And obviously there's a lot more, there's a bigger, bigger film and television industry in Los Angeles mm. than there is, you know, in other parts of the world. Uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. anywhere really. I mean, I guess you, the only thing that could really rival it, I suppose, could be like Bollywood. But then... And there is some Indian sci-fi, but it's not what you would think. It's not, nothing like Star Trek. It's quite different. So also scientists run amok. Religion and UFOs on Earth. There was a new science fiction series that has come out, um, made in Israel, which had a very heavy religious element to it. A man flying through space with a female hologram, essentially in a rocket that's the size of his own bedroom. That's a, that's a <laughs> Russian series that you can look up on YouTube. It's really weird. A lot of dystopian science fiction. So a lot of like dystopia on Earth in the future or dystopia on another planet, different competing dystopian societies. And my fe- personal favorite, my personal favorite was the Hadron Collider sinking all of the Earth's continents into the ocean and then everyone having to survive in a water world. I was quite sad I didn't get to watch that one. That sounded amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely, I would watch that show actually, I think. So some of the ones that I actually did watch were, I watched a little bit of a Korean science fiction show called My Love from the Star, which was a romantic melodrama about an alien that landed on Earth. And then it sort of quickly passed by 400 years of him living through Korean history and then basically falling in love with somebody. And it was very romantic. It was very melodramatic. The production values, there was a lot of costumes and high level production values. It was like a melodramatic Doctor Who, except mm-hmm. maybe more romantic. And this got me thinking a little bit about Korean television because Korea, Korean television is something that you're finding more and more like on Western streaming services. And I actually find Korean television very hard to watch. And mm-hmm. this, I wondered a little bit if this is something that, you know, overseas audiences might struggle with Star Trek if they're not culturally aligned with America. Mm. Is that you, if you ever watch a television show or a foreign film and their behavior seems odd, the character's behavior seems odd, or the acting seems over the top, or the acting seems strangely muted, like in some Scandinavian dramas, the actors mm. are talking about very serious dramatic things, but they seem very, um, I don't know what the word would be, like deadpan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then in this Korean drama, they're almost kind of too chirpy, like kind of hyper. And this, in this sort of slow motion, a lot of like romantic looks and a lot of music. It seemed very much like a soap opera, but this is, was a hugely popular show in Korea. And mm-hmm. Koreans are actually getting more and more into science fiction because the television in Korea is normally dominated by um, romance and period dramas. And they want more stuff like time travel, clones, aliens, because uh, they're starting to get bored with the formulas of traditional Korean television. So the Korean television industry is actually trying to break into science fiction. 
And it's mm-hmm. primarily people in their 20s and 30s who are more into the idea of science fiction and they enjoy Western sci-fi because they say it's unpredictable in the storytelling, which I thought was mm. quite interesting because sometimes Star Trek can seem quite formulaic to me, mm. but I haven't been, I haven't grown up in Korea and I haven't been watching Korean television all this time. I'm talking about South Korea primarily, of course. So, but one of the things that you do find a lot in Korea... North Korea doesn't really need to come up with dystopian <laughs> sci-fi, do they? They're basically living it. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure we wouldn't be watching any of that, <laughs> that yeah. television anyway. Um, but one of the things that you see a lot in Korean television is the themes of love and family. And yet again, also with Japanese television and te- Japanese dramas, family and relationships is hugely important which is something that Star Trek does have. So I also wondered why Star Trek wasn't bigger in these cultures and why all this science fiction is quite different than Star Trek. I couldn't find, apart from this one um, German television show that was also made in 1966, which I'm going to try and pronounce. Rampenwil, whatever it was. Yeah. Raupantrolui, the Fantaschen... Aventura des Ramashivan Ramashivas Orion. I'm sorry, I apologise to any German people out here right now. <laughs> What's that? The Fantastic Adventures of the Spaceship Orion. Yeah. That's my guess. Which was made I in nineteen sixty six. But <laughs> and what and was yeah. on television around the same time as Star Trek in Germany, but has obviously not continued. Never took off in the same way. I have to say I, I watched the first episode of that show. I, I think that one is worth a watch. I thought it was quite enjoyable. It's quite an interesting setup. It reminded me very much of Broken Bow in that you've got this setup of this kind of, um, this ship and their captain and they, the captain's in trouble because he's a bit of a kind of Captain Kirk never playing by the rules. And he's, he, he decides to land his ship on a planet just to see whether he can do it. And his boss is like, you know, why did you do this? You didn't need to do this. And you're taking risks and everything. And they send this, um, character, this blonde woman, Tamara. Uh, to go and kind of basically spy on him and report back and, and make sure that he follows the rules and so on. She's very much this kind of T'Pol character, basically, and a lot of the same kind of attitudes that the Enterprise crew have towards T'Pol are, are sort of similar to this group of men and how they react to this woman being um on their ship. And I, I sent you a screen grab. I was watching it. This is how dedicated I was. I was watching it while I was walking the dogs this morning because you sent me this link and I was like, I'm not going to have any time today to, to have a look at this. So I'll just, I'll, I'll try and watch it while I'm walking the dogs. So I was watching on my phone screen, uh, you know, while at least half concentrating on whether my dogs had run off into the woods or whatever. And there was this, uh, I'm trying to read the subtitles on the Chinese screen. And there's this point where they say, they, they, they're debating about the captain and how he, he's sort of reckless and he, he, you know, goes off guided by his gut instincts and so on and he, he can't be relied on to do the right thing and he says i he says i don't need to have a spook on board my ship and i was convinced that he said i don't need a spock on board my <laughs> ship because that is basically exactly what the the scenario was in a sense in that she's this very cool kind of practical um sensible rule-abiding woman uh combined with this kind of maverick captain who's much more, you know, although he's German, he, he has all those kind of personality traits that we would associate with a kind of American hero in a way, whether that's Captain Kirk or Indiana Jones or whoever it is, you know, someone who kind of doesn't really respect the rules and kind of is their own man. But I actually quite enjoyed that one. I wondered whether the main reason it hadn't taken off is it's in black and white. And I think maybe Star Trek was very lucky in some respects, as much as the original series, you know, and particularly that first season of the, Amer- of the original series was a, you know, fantastic show and a great piece of work 
the fact that it was a colour show when there was so little being made in colour at the time that it was, you know, I mean, they were selling TV sets on the back of the original series, on the back of the colour on that show. And obviously the design of the, you know, the primary colours for the uniforms and so on was kind of tying into that and making the show as colourful as possible and the lighting as well, making it as colourful as possible. That maybe that was one aspect of why Star Trek sort of captured the imagination in a way that this black and white German show didn't. But I I did think it was a bit of a shame because actually compared to the other stuff that certainly that I looked at this week, it was the most, it wasn't similar to Star Trek exactly, but it had certain elements in common and it was the most kind of, I don't know if you'd say it was utopian exactly. I mean, I think part of what's unusual about Star Trek is this sort of broadly utopian future, but a lot of sci-fi is dystopian one way or another. And a lot of sci-fi that takes place on a ship, it tends to be, for a lot of the shows that I've been looking at anyway, it's not so much a ship that's part of a military organisation, that's part of a structure, that's part of a command hierarchy and so on. All these things that Star Trek has, that the rampant, whatever it is, that the spaceship Orion show that put out... <laughs> There you go. Uh, had, you know, where, where they had the same thing with like the, the bad morals effectively, like getting on his back and so on and the kind of command structure and the tension of playing by the rules, but also, you know, being the hero and so on. Actually, most sci-fi shows that I was sort of coming across, particularly those from other countries, if there's a ship involved, it's like some random group of people who've ended up on a ship together. There's a kind of amateurish quality to it. I mean, we talked a lot this week about Farscape, a show that I absolutely loved when that came on in, I think, the late 90s, which was an Australian uh, sci-fi show about this kind of group of aliens. You know, one of them was a human from our time, basically, and the rest of them, various different aliens who sort of ended up on the ship together and, and was, uh, you know, is a fantastic show, really well made, very quirky, very kind of offbeat, quite funny. And a lot of it is to do with the fact of this group of very disparate characters kind of having been thrown together. You know, they're not like Starfleet. They're not people who've all signed up for the same thing. I went back and watched for my sins this week, uh, the German Canadian co-production. I think it was Lex. I don't know if you ever saw that back in the day. It used to be on like late at night. And that is a very strange, if you're talking about like a different cultural approach to sci-fi. And I don't, I don't want to like cast aspersions on the whole of Germany by saying this, but it definitely has a kind of Euro trash sensibility to it. That show, you know, it's, it's extremely kind of, it, it, it's obsessively, uh, focused on sex. It's quite sort of sleazy. A lot of the way that it's produced, it's kind of borderline pornographic. Some of the episodes, it is also quite creative. I mean, it, it's completely bonkers, but it is quite creative in terms of sci-fi. It's got this kind of cheap, slightly <laughs> schlocky sci-fi quality. But actually, I discovered, you know, look, reading into it, it has a real cult following now, you know, 20, whatever it is, years later. Um, and as much as it is, it's, it's certainly not like serious sci-fi. It's not sort of maybe quality entertainment in the way that you might say Star Trek is. There's stuff in there. There's It's quite creative. I'd say there's quite a lot of creativity has gone into it as much as it seems to be sort of playing down to quite a kind of um like i say sort of slightly sleazy level of entertainment but at the same time it's it's kind of schlocky it's pulpy and so on but there is some kind of real creativity in there but again it's this group of the ultimately random group of people you know one of them is a security guard who's got in trouble and has ended up they, they end up stealing a ship basically all these things you know you end up they end up stealing a ship same with blake seven really you know you mentioned doctor who i mean talking about another british popular british sci-fi show and that is very, you know, not just dystopian, but really bleak to the point that 
spoilers and i spoil this for myself because i'd never seen blake seven i went i watched the first episode and i read ahead a bit to find out what happens the last episode of blake seven everyone dies basically and it's it's this relentlessly bleak uh society really and they're this kind of robin hood like gang they've they've stolen this super advanced ship these guys and they're they're using it to kind of fight the good fight but ultimately you know they're not going to be successful but it's sort of this idea you know with farscape they've ended up on this amazingly powerful ship that none of them really had any sort of right to in a sense they kind of just ended up there with lex these very random people one of them is a 2000 year dead sort of reanimated corpse type person the other one is this sex robot well she's a woman she's this woman who's been uh punished it's also pretty bleak and dystopian she'd been punished for for disrespecting her husband in this future society and her punishment was to be transformed into this sort of sex slave for a group of horny priests basically uh but the operation goes wrong and she gets blended with some alien sort of lizard monsters dna at the same time so she's kind of half half this beautiful sexy lady and half this kind of alien snake thing it's a very weird program i'm not saying i would necessarily recommend it but you know it's out there if if you want to check it out. But I mean, it just sort of struck me. And, and um, talking about British series as well, you know, the, the other show that I used to love as a kid was Red Dwarf, which is arguably, you know, more a comedy series than it is a sci-fi series. But there is a fair bit of sci-fi in there. And again, that's very much this kind of ragtag group of random people. You know, the last surviving human is not one that's been chosen on any reasonable basis it's just he happened to be in the right place at the right time his cat that's evolved you know it's a random robot they pick up along the way this kind of idea of this sort of sci-fi this sort of rogues gallery of um misfits what giorgio talks about as uh mirror giorgio talks about as section 31 this kind of um place where all the kind of weird kids hang out almost that that sci-fi often seems to fall into that kind of category rather than Star Trek, which is much more professionalised, much more kind of interested in these kind of hierarchies and command structures and responsibility and duty and all these kind of higher ideals in a sense. Whereas a lot of these shows, it's much more about survival. It's much more about sort of slightly more basic needs. Yeah, whether it's surviving, you know, not being blown up or whether it's, you know, in Lex, all the characters constantly lusting after each other and, you know, trying to satisfy their own desires one way or another it's you know star trek i suppose it's more utopian it's more it's it's more utopian on a kind of societal level but it's also more utopian in terms of there are certain assumptions we can make about starfleet and people who are serving in starfleet and that they are basically good compassionate selfless moral people and that i suppose is maybe unusual in science fiction one way or another i mean it's interesting that you uh, mentioned that there was a hierarchical system in this German series, Rumpatrui. I think I said it right that time. Rumpatrui. Rumpatruil. Oh, whatever. You know what I'm saying. And it's interesting you should mention there's a higher, uh, like a command hierarchy and a structure there because what's deemed to be like, I guess a semi military organization in Star Trek and appropriate for audiences at the time, that kind of storytelling wasn't deemed appropriate in Germany. So one of the things I found out about this series was that uh, the controllers of the state television channel, ARD, were concerned about accusations of excessive militarism in the actual show and the portrayal of a system that could be linked to fascism. And obviously that was something at the time that they didn't want German audiences absorbing or watching, or, or actually they didn't want any accusations of like those themes at all in their television and the executive producer of the show who was a a man called helmut crap 
admitted that the issue was taken very seriously and that he was quite concerned that the actual show was too militaristic. Whereas you have to imagine that being applied to the original series in Star Trek. You know, I don't think it was. I mean, granted, there's a lot of peace preaching in the original series. There's a lot of talk of peace. There's a lot of wars that are avoided. But there's also a lot of, like, action and gung-ho. And there's a lot of fighting as well. There's also space battles. I mean, the Federation is a semi-militaristic kind of... Well, not the Federation, Starfleet is a semi-militaristic kind of organisation, you know? And interestingly, there is a show that sort of presents a, a, yet again, it is a ragtag bunch of people that have found themselves on the same ship, which is kind of what you're describing a lot of this science fiction across the world is. But it, it does present a sort of more dystopian American science fiction series. I mean, Battlestar Galactica is more dystopian, for one thing, and that does have a military structure to it. I think about the old Battlestar Galactica, but I'm also thinking about the new one. But Firefly. Well, yes, yeah. So Firefly Fire... is the kind of ragtag. Yeah. So I was just going to say Battlestar Galactica, it's quite, compared to Star Trek, it's quite harsh. There's like strict military discipline. There's a degree of, it feels more militaristic to me than Starfleet in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like there are more serious consequences to uh, misbehavior. To do you, do you know what I mean? It's like there's a, there's a slightly, not brutal exactly, but there's a kind of strictness to that the military in that show that you don't really see in Star Trek ever, I think. Yeah, it's definitely more militaristic and it, you know, there's a lot of bad things that happen in it. You know, there's mm. suicide, there's a lot of death, uh, there's abuse of prisoners, um, there's sexual assault. Mm. I mean, that's kind of stuff that I think Star Trek does try to explore, but also can struggle with because it has to maintain this sort of utopian, higher moral message, perhaps maybe more earnest in a way. You know, Star Trek is a very earnest show. And one of the things that mm. they say, you know, worldwide about Americans is that they're very earnest in their values and in their interactions with other people, which isn't a bad thing, mm. but kind of doesn't gel well with the whole irreverent sort of humor of Red Dwarf or the sort mm. of zany kind of sarcasm of like Doctor Who. But Firefly is an interesting example because Firefly predicts or shows a future where the two dominant societies are both China and America. So they actually speak mm-hmm. Mandarin in the show. Mm-hmm. Granted, they only really ever swear in Mandarin, and that's to get around the senses of um, the network mainly. But there's a lot of, you know, sort of Asian influences in the, the costumes, in the sort of general background. Firefly is portraying a bunch of characters who haphazardly find themselves on the same ship, but they're also people who've lost a war. And the Federation mm. in their world, you know, which isn't the Federation, they have a word for it. And I can't remember what the, what the term for it is. It's like, it's like the, the greater authority in the space, in space, yeah. you know, so it's like, it is like a, a, the Alliance. They're called the Alliance. That's what they're called. Right. And they are the oppressors. They're, they're fascist. They're a fascist space, space regime, you know, which is kind of fireflies a little bit like how people like Harry Mudd might see the Federation. Do you know what I mean? In Star Trek. And Firefly, arguably, is the show that really capitalises on the kind of wagon train to the stars concept in a way that Star Trek never quite... I mean, not to say that Star Trek doesn't owe a lot to the Western and that that isn't a real influence in various ways, but Firefly is much more so, I would say, at least sort of tonally a Western 
in space, if you know what I mean. It absolutely has that kind of feel. It has that kind of, you know, even in, you know, you mentioned the, the the sort of Chinese influence costumes, but a lot of the costumes, you, you know, the captain in that show is basically a cowboy, isn't he? That's the way he's kind of styled. And you could say the same thing. Han Solo in Star Wars is basically a cowboy. You know, there is this kind of association between these things. And I mean, we often look at how Star Trek borrows from kind of historical periods, historical kind of archetypes and influences and so on, as well as literary or, or cinema or, or whatever they are influences. But I mean, there is this sort of question, you know, we're talking about culture, how, how are different cultures say in the 20th century earth, uh, different in terms of the kind of science fiction they might produce and the kind of Im- way they might imagine the future. But, you know, there's also a di- sort of distinctions of culture over time. And often the reference points for these shows are not contemporary, they're historical. So, you, you know, if you see Firefly and to some extent Star Trek is influenced by the Wild West and by the kind of um, Western expansion of that kind of period of, you know, manifest destiny or whatever you want to call it, the kind of that process in America of the of the frontier, which is obviously, you know, where we get the idea of the final frontier and, and so on from. I mean, it is absolutely in there in Star Trek um, from the beginning. But also it's interesting, You were, we were talking this week online in preparation for this show about different cultures in Star Trek and whether they might be inspired by kind of real world cultures and so on. And we were talking a bit about the Klingons and you were saying, you know, maybe the Klingons to you suggested say the samurai culture in japan and i said that for me the klingons make me think more of these kind of medieval i suppose or even further back maybe like something like beowulf there's kind of you know something all this like tankards of ale and the kind of gory fighting and the questing and so on but also this kind of obsession with honor and if you think about say medieval english uh sort of stories and so on you have these knights who are quite bloody and quite bloodthirsty in some ways, but they might be, they've taken a vow of purity or of chastity or something. These kind of, these things that to us seem contradictory, the idea that a soldier would have these sort of two sides to them. And they seem contradictory because that culture, you know, even if it's in some sense notionally our culture, like, you know, if these are, this is sort of English literary or, or historical culture, it's it's alien you you know the the past is another country there there is this kind of sense that there are kind of cultural touchstones our kind of cultural beliefs and so on do change over time and that you know i don't know whether how that sort of plays into these things obviously in science fiction with the fact that it's being set in the future and obviously all science fiction is going to encode some of the ideas of the time that's being produced but it's also encoding ideas about the history that's led up to that and the kind of inspirations that it's drawing from. And I think that makes some of these sort of cultural ideas difficult, particularly when it comes to, like we were saying earlier, you know, what about the Cardassians or the Romulans or whatever, you know, what do all these people are always saying, oh, does this race in Star Trek represent this thing in the real world? And in some ways, I think those things, if they're too schematic like that, they're, they're in a way less successful it's it's good that they can be a bit more nuanced a bit more contradictory and a bit more sort of complex but it also sort of makes me wonder do we when we look at foreign language particularly foreign language or, or not even foreign language i mean something like lex is, is german produced but is in english uh you know we, there's no language barrier there but that do we look at it knowing that it's been produced by a german company and make assumptions based on that do we look at farscape I mean, I was watching Farscape thinking, okay, I know this is an Australian show, so I'm sort of looking for things that seem distinctively Australian. And I could say, well, maybe something about the kind of, 
the fact that it doesn't seem to take itself too seriously, you might associate that with kind of Australian culture, maybe to some extent. But then equally, that was a show that was actually written by an American. And I don't know whether, do you know what I mean? How, how much do these, sometimes I wonder, are we just seeing what we're looking for? If you know what I mean? And actually, the more I looked at all these different shows, the more I find commonalities between a British show, a German show, uh, you know, th- th- this German show from 1966 and Star Trek, you know, arguably coming out of quite different situations at that time and different, you know, living memory history. And yet I would say those two had, that was the show of, of all the ones that I've seen this week in the research that we've been doing that had the most in common with Star Trek was one coming from a different culture, you know. Or at least a different country. And as we've mentioned, like Star Trek has a big following in Germany. So that doesn't actually mm. surprise me that much. I actually think that these shows really are quite different. I don't think it's just our mm. assumptions about different cultures. I don't think that's a bad thing though. You know, I don't think it's a bad thing that they are different because they are made by different cultures or different countries. I, I think that's good. I think it's variety. And in fact, I think it's a shame that our television viewing is so dominated by Western culture. And you did mention a lot of Western cultures, like Western countries and that, like, you know, like Germany, you know, talking about Britain. I mean, we haven't talked a huge amount about Asian science fiction. And one of the things that's interesting I noticed when reading people, people's views on the internet and sort of doing some research around this is it's hard to find out, obviously, because I'm in England and I'm Googling on English or American Google, it's hard to find out how Star Trek's perceived in Japan. But the few things that I did read, it sort of implied that Star Trek isn't very big in Japan, that actually Star Wars is bigger. Star Wars is bigger probably worldwide because of the movies and all that sort of thing. But Star Trek, uh, Star Wars is bigger because Star Wars is bigger because it follows this kind of like storyline that's like mythic journey, but also follows like samurai type storylines, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and that Star Trek doesn't fit in with that, but actually that Star Trek itself has influenced the design of lots of different Asian sci-fi. So that, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the the design of the enterprise bridge can be uh, sort of seen again and again in, in, in anime, um, in, you know, other sort of television shows made in, in, in Japan or in Asia. And I, I do think they are different. I think if you watch a Russian period drama, which I just did the other day on Amazon, it's different than a British period drama. If you saw a Russian version of War and Peace versus the British version of War and Peace, it's different. Like the acting is slightly different. The language is obviously different. The production values are slightly different. The way the story is told, the style, style choices of the music, the filming, it is slightly different. Now this isn't to say one is worse or one is better. I mean, one might be easier for you to watch because you're more attuned to British television, that you're attuned to Andrew Davies, you know, um, Pride and Prejudice or Les Miserables, which we just talked about. Well, Les Miserables. I mean, That's an what, English what version a, of a French novel. Is it, is it, exactly. And it struck me when I was, because when we were talking about this last time around, you know, I, so I, I was watching the Andrew Davies version. I also watched the movie. And at a certain point, I realised this is really weird. There's two Australian actors, Hugh Jackman and Russell Crowe, playing French characters with English accents. What's going on here? Do you know what I mean? Like, what? what's the kind of, what, what does this sort of mean even? Like, what? why is everyone English in, but at the same time, you know, we don't want kind of allo allo and all these kind of, the, the, the danger of everyone kind of doing an accent and playing a foreign character. But there is that sort of tendency with works of world literature when we adapt them. The working class characters in Les Miserables speak with, a, you know, say a Cockney accent. 
do you know what I mean? So like we translate, there's a translation of kind of, um, our own sort of cultural assumptions and our own kind of cultural, uh, language almost like the way that we sort of express certain things translates across from one culture's literature to another. But it would be kind of interesting. Yeah. French Les Miserables would probably be quite different. And a French Star Trek, I'm sure would be very different. I mean, France is one country that we haven't really talked about much. And I don't know about you. I didn't come across very much. Science fiction isn't big in France. Not like it isn't big in America, not like it's big in, not like Doctor Who is big in Britain. There really isn't that much French science fiction. And I mean, there is some, obviously, but a lot more of it is, it's not set in space. It's not set in the future. It's science fiction like clones or like robots or something. And even then, there's not that much. I mean, we could fill a whole nother podcast talking about different genres and different cultures. I mean, for instance, you know, like the French are big and like police procedural dramas or dramas about like the law, um, or, you know, obviously Scandinavian noir murder mysteries is a big thing. You know, the Chinese do these big epic, um, sort of, uh, period, you know, martial arts films, which are really beautifully filmed. Um, so this, you know, we could go and talk about the different genres and different cultures, but I think when you are watching something that's made by a completely different culture, there is this sometimes a slight disconnect and it does kind of sometimes feel a little weird to you and you think, why should this feel weird? Because I can understand the storyline. I can kind of get that this is a romantic drama or this is a science fiction show. Like, why does it feel strange to me? And it is because, like, if you watch a Bollywood movie, it's very different to a Western movie. If you watch a Bollywood comedy, it's very different to, like, an American comedy. And you may not get all the humour. And it's because it is made by a different culture. So yeah, part of it is we're sort of saying, oh, is this typically German? But part of it is, it is that there's this, um, a different culture and they have, they have a different way of absorbing their entertainment. They have a different way of telling stories. And there's something wonderful about that as well. And one of the things I thought was strange was that how little there was like Star Trek outside of, of Star Trek. And I wondered if that was because America has dominated like science fiction itself in the world dominated the genre or whether if star trek has actually dominated science fiction whether it's star trek dominated sci-fi or and like pushed out other shows do you see what i'm saying because it's taken up that space or whether america is dominated sci-fi maybe they go hand in hand i mean there are obviously other american shows that have had a big legacy, maybe not as big as Star Trek, you know, something like Lost in Space or Buck Rogers or, you know, later on, I suppose, Babylon 5. I mean, I think part of it may be to do with budgets and maybe, you know, maybe sci-fi is not a particularly mainstream genre generally. I mean, with Next Gen, they kind of hit the big time in that they they did become very, they became a very mainstream show, but I don't think any Star Trek show since then has quite uh, managed to hit that. And it's also very expensive to produce compared to a lot of genres because of the special effects, because of the kind of, you know, it's, it's not a cheap thing to make typically, especially if it's out in space with lots of spaceships and all, you know, that kind of thing. But I do think it surprises me in a way that these other countries haven't tried to do their own Star Trek in the way that, you know, like, like you said, the Orville, I mean, the Orville is very like, yeah, it's a sort of affectionate, homage or you know however you want to express it but is basically a kind of riff on star trek the orville couldn't possibly exist if it weren't for star trek it's you know it's it's borrowing on every possible level and whether you think that borrowing is charming and and funny or or you know slightly lazy or however you want to kind of interpret that is a discussion for another time but i mean it made me think though also of 
sometimes with these kind of foreign language things, you know, you were saying you watch a series from another culture and you feel there's something slightly different, there's something slightly alien about this. You know, we we love watching the Scandi Noir shows because there's something slightly off and slightly different and slightly kind of thrillingly, I don't know, just just slightly strange about them, I suppose, is part of the of the charm of that. But then, of course, what we do get quite often these days is shows that are remade for a different culture. So, for example, the sci-fi show Humans, which is made in the UK, um, and I didn't realise this until I'd watched a series of that show, but it's quite kind of bleak. It's quite sort of um, existential. It's about it's about these basically robots that are kind of self-aware, and but they're being used by people, and it kind of becomes this thing about sort of robot rights and robot, you know, the sort of ethical, moral questions around that and so on. But it's, it's a slightly kind of cool aspect to the way it's made. There's something quite kind of slightly chilling and otherworldly about it. And it actually was a remake of a Swedish series, I think, which was called something along the same, you know, it wasn't called humans, but it was called something similar in Swedish. And actually, when you know that, it kind of makes perfect sense, like the tone of that series and something about the kind of quality of it and the way that it plays out, you can sort of see, yeah, that kind of makes sense. It does, it does feel slightly different to how an English person might originally have written that. But at the same time, they've adapted it, they made it work as an English drama. It's not strange in a way that makes you feel alienated. It's, it's just kind of interesting and it's slightly unusual. Even something like Homeland, for example, was a remake of an Israeli uh, drama originally and certainly in the first season or two, you know, managed to translate that to a different culture, to American culture very successfully. So it is possible to remake. Certainly we're doing it like English language produces our kind of plundering foreign language production, interesting foreign language productions to make their own versions of things. I mean, even The Killing, there was an American version of The Killing, I think, basically a remake of The Killing in America. It does sort of raise the question, what would, what would Star Trek look like if it was, if one of these other cultures, if France or Germany or Japan or whatever decided, right, we're going to do basically what, you know, not quite the Orville, but we're basically going to do, look, Star Trek has been massively successful for America. We're going to do our version of this show and we're going to, you know, obviously all the names will be slightly different and it's not going to be an absolute carbon copy. Basically, that's going to be our model. What would change and what would that look like? You know, what would a French, what would Jean-Luc Picard in a French uh, version of Star Trek be like? What, you know, what? How, how would that be different? What would they, you know... I don't know, would they all be smoking gulwars in 10 forward and having deep existential depressing conversations? <laughs> you know, who knows what? I mean, I, we make they our own assumptions, don't we? Have our own prejudices. No, they wouldn't be drinking Earl Grey, mm-hmm. that's for sure. And I don't think they'd be drinking synthol either. But, um, <laughs> you know, how would these things, what would a Japanese Star Trek look like? I mean, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but it's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? You know, if Star Trek had been remade in all these different cultures and reappropriated by these different cultures. It would be different. Um, what would a Klingon Star Trek look like? Cause I feel like we saw that with, with Discovery and that point of light episode, which felt like Game of Thrones or something. That was almost like someone, wow, someone else is making Star Trek this week. <laughs> you know, it's not just, they're not just doing the previously on, on Discovery. They're somehow the Klingons are in charge of making the episode. It felt like, but yeah, it would. It would be different. It would be very different. Yeah. I think it would be, I think definitely, I also think the music would be different. I think the filming would be different. Just thinking about how, like, I think a French version would have a lot more explicit sex in it or just, just Mm -hmm. more exact, more sex, to be honest. Cause there's always, 
sex in French dramas. And I think the way it's filmed as well would be different. I think there'd be more like shaky camera work, handheld cameras. I think like a Korean Star Trek series would be a lot more about emotional interpersonal relationships on the Mm -hmm. show. I think it would be more romantic. I think a Scandinavian Star Trek series would perhaps be a bit more brutal, that there'd be more like landings on brutal, bleak planets. Maybe they would sort of walk (laughs) around saying very kind of calm, relaxed things to each other until they start screaming at each other. I mean, I think, I think it would be really different. And I think, I think that there would be a market actually for more science fiction in other countries. But I wonder, I I guess my question I wonder is, is is there a market in America and in Britain for foreign science fiction? And at the moment, I don't think there is because they haven't really been um, importing any of that stuff. You know, I mean, I, I had to really search on the internet to find some of these shows and I mean, I didn't have to go to the dark web or anything. It wasn't like I was <laughs> there alone at night, like incognito on, on Google Chrome. Or the dark universe or from dark, Lex. Or Sony yeah. universe or anything. <laughs> but it was hard to find some of this stuff. And then when playing it on YouTube, and my husband was mm. like, what are you watching? <laughs> so <laughs> He must be used to you it. Know, like, yeah. But I did think that was, I did think that was, it was interesting to see how... Mm different science fiction is across across the world and how little there is like star trek out there which in a way also makes you feel great because then it's a really unique franchise it's special it's special yeah yeah it is absolutely well it's interesting though i mean a few years ago no one would have predicted that scandinavian uh crime dramas would be something that people in england were watching and were, were glued to religiously do you know what i mean like that was a very alien concept to us when you know i remember the first time i heard people talking about the killing i was like what do you mean you're you're watching a you know whatever it is danish uh why why are you doing that it just seems like such a random concept you know and then these like french police procedurals and you know we have kind of in the last you know whatever it is less than 10 years adapted to the idea of this kind of real quality tv coming from these other countries and that we might be that we might be missing out on something by not watching The Killing or by not watching Borgen or whatever, just as we might be missing out by not watching Breaking Bad or, you know, whatever it is. So I think the potential is there. I mean, if there are good... I don't know what that show about the Hadron Collider going wrong and the Earth being sunk under the sea, but like I said, that appealed to me. That was a good sort of one-line pitch of a sci-fi show for me. I would watch that, even if it has subtitles, you know. And I think the more that Netflix, as I said basically tricks people into watching things by not revealing that they're actually in a foreign <laughs> language, the more that's going to become something that people who are seeking out those kind of interesting stories are going to, you know, are going to try. And I mean, some of those imports have been quite, I don't know if you call science fiction exactly, but there was that uh, French show, which was very kind of Twin Peaksy. Was it called The Return? The Return, the, the, yeah. The, the Return, about those kids who, who went missing and then this girl came back years later. And that was... It wasn't exactly sci-fi, but it was kind of in that realm of like otherworldly. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of set in the in the real world, but there's something weird, sort of mysterious and weird going on. Um, and that was sold quite broadly. I mean, I think it's just a question of partly of sort of marketing. I mean, whoever it was who persuaded 
BBC or whoever to show the killing and persuaded a lot of people to watch it and probably columnists in the Guardian or whatever, you know, saying you've got to watch this new show or, and so on affected a kind of cultural change in England. I don't know whether the same is true in America. I know in America they remade The Killing. We certainly didn't remake The Killing. But then we did remake The Bridge. Mm. You know, there was a, a version of The Bridge um made as a kind of Anglo-French co-production, I think. And um, they remade it in the US as well, as the border as the border they? between with a America right, okay, and yeah. So Oh, that'd be interesting. I mean, so, you, you know, obviously something like that you can see like it adapts because the concept because it because it's such a strong concept and you can adapt it to a different local setting that'll be different each time. But I just I don't know whether all those Scandinoir shows made the same impact in the United States as they did here, but they obviously made an impact in so far as they remade the most successful of them um and sold it as an American show. So someone was watching it clearly whether or not you know sort of large scale audiences were and Broadchurch, obviously British, very successful British crime drama, quite influenced in some ways, very influenced, I'd say, by those Scandinavian crime dramas, then remade in America as an American crime drama. So these things do, it is possible to kind of break through. And we've seen with Next Gen in particular, and with Star Trek more generally, it's possible for sci-fi to break through to the mainstream and to kind of impact on mainstream kind of cultural consciousness. So who knows, maybe in the next 10 years, the go-to sci-fi show that everyone's going to want to be watching will be something out of Germany or, I don't know, Korea or even France. Be Dust Track. If they can bring themselves. Dust yeah, Track? Exactly. No, Dust Dust Track. <laughs> Lutrec. Marlena Dietrich. Lutrec. <laughs> yeah. I, I have no idea how to say the track in, in, in Mandarin. You're exposing the poor quality <laughs> of foreign language uh, teaching in English schools, basically. <laughs> exactly. Which is why we can't cope with subtitles or, you know, anything foreign. Just not used to it. So before we go, I would like to extend an invitation to uh, everybody on the Babel Conference to let us know about any science fiction shows they may have watched that are from other parts of the world, like uh, Thai science fiction, uh, science fiction from Fiji, science fiction from Russia. I'm just mentioning random countries. <laughs> Um, but have you seen any show out there that we haven't talked about or that you don't think anyone's really heard about, but is actually a hidden gem? Please let us know. You mentioned Russia. I feel it, it would be remiss not to at least point out the fact that the whole concept of robots, which, you know, I mentioned is Swedish drama humans, obviously something like Data and Next Gen, the Russians invented the idea of the robot. So if nothing else, I don't know what Russian sci-fi, I mean, obviously there's like Solaris and things like that. I don't know what Russian sci-fi TV is like, and it's not something I came across in my research this week, but anything that has anything to do with robots, we owe the Russians for that. So that impact is strongly felt one way or another. Yeah. Yes. And I, I have to emphasize that I did actually see Solaris in the cinema one time and the cultural like disconnect that I felt with Solaris. I mean, I, I felt like it was a very Russian film. I don't actually know if it is, but I felt it was like a very Russian film. I also felt like uh, the English audience sitting in the Prince Charles cinema watching Solaris didn't quite understand it. And in fact, one woman next to me whispered to me, is this all in Russian? <laughs> <laughs> well, famously, you know, when Blade Runner, when the original cut of Blade Runner was screened, because, they, because you know, it, Blade Runner was a film that wasn't so successful in the initial cut, and then there was the director's cut, and most people prefer the director's cut. Supposedly in France, the original cut of Blade Runner worked perfectly, and the French got it. 
they just they 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 got the whole issue you know is Deckard a replicant is he human you know all all of this stuff that was sort of in the subtext the French was the only market in the world that really <laughs> got what the film was trying to do apparently uh, and everyone else had to have it kind of remade and and packaged in a way that was kind of acceptable and the French were like yeah we we, we saw that in the first version I don't know what you know what film were you watching <laughs> so I guess different audiences take different things out of the same cultural product whether it's their own or someone else's well and like in the example of my mother who there's a very very dark detective series called Hinterland that's set in Wales mm. which is based on it's sort of like definitely inspired by Scandinavian noir noir television and she's like it's so bleak I can't watch it it's just it's just it's just so bleak it's so depressing but yet she can watch Scandinavian noir television. So for some reason, mm. Scandinavians, like Danish people and Norwegian people being depressed while solving a murder is okay. But watching these Welsh people <laughs> try and solve a murder while like going through ter- terrible trauma and like, mm. you know, gruesome dead bodies on the, you know, sort of Welsh countryside. She's like, Oh, it's just too much. I'm like, it's too, too close, close to home. home. <laughs> oh dear. Well, It has been really interesting discovering science fiction from across the world and also discussing, you know, alternative Star Trek and what alternative Star Trek would be like and analysing whether or not Star Trek is actually as American as we thought it was. Uh, But this is not the only subject that has been discussed on the network this week. So here's a look at what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. It it always frustrated me because on on screen we saw in depth the Klingon government the Bajoran government the Cardassian government to a lesser extent the Romulan government we almost never saw the Federation government you know we we three three times we saw a president once we saw the council the council was mentioned any number of times but we never really saw it warp five when I go to throw a switch for the first time, you know, a 4,000 amp switch, I got to wear this heavy, thick, padded uniform to make sure that if something went wrong, I don't die. But if I can get some Tholian silk... Yeah, you could look good it'd be like a, doing it at the same time. Right. right. T-shirt and, and jeans, and we're good. I, I'm just thinking for when I go to Mexico, <laughs> I can have a stylish Tholian silk Mexican Hawaiian or a Hawaiian shirt. I love it. Yeah, because you got to know that that stuff would that, that stuff would be light on you. It would look good. It would breathe well. Earl Grey. Yeah, and the odd thing was, I really didn't know. And I remember my dad came to me. I was like nine years old. I'm watching TV downstairs in New Jersey, and I'm watching some old James Cagney movie. And James Cagney was, you know, in a scene where he was, you know, beating up a bunch of people, like in a bra- barroom brawl. Or and my dad came downstairs it was like 10 o'clock at night and he saw me really watching James Cagney beat up all these guys and my dad said to me you really like James Cagney and I said yeah I do and he goes do you want to be like James Cagney and I thought about it and I said no but I want to be those guys he's beating up <laughs> melodic treks and in this music you have these soaring horns that introduce the melody and they carry it through and the sound, because the register is very high, the sound, and because of the nature of the French horn, the sound is very hollow. It's somewhat ghostly and haunting. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond 
You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type in Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from the X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. You're blended all right. <laughs>